The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Slate Superfest East, sponsored by Acura. Hooray! Or, as we have been calling it around the office, the Gab Fest Fest. Uh, I'm Dan Coyce. I'm Slate's culture editor. I'm the co-host of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Um, my co-host, Allison Benedict, cannot be here because she is parenting. Uh, I'm really happy to be here with you guys in front of 600 rowdy, drunken fans of reasoned, sober debate. Uh, and today we will determine who is the best gab fester of all time uh, as our three big podcasts discuss three topics. Three topics. Are you ready to hear what those topics are? Yeah. One, the battle over immigration. Does Obama or the GOP have the upper hand in the coming border skirmish? Two, sports gambling. Will the NBA's support of legalization be enough to change things in America? And three, emoji. (laughs) Smiley face, heart, crying face, gun, pile of poop. Plus, we will have a series of whirlwind debates in which pairs of mismatched gab festers face off on the most crucial issues of our time. So let's get it started. Our three GabFest teams are backstage right now. They've been doing vocal warm-ups and gabbing at each other for like two hours. Uh, There's been a lot of posturing like Pesca just slate pitched that contrarianism is just another kind of conformity just to show that he could. Uh, But now we are ready to bring them out and determine which podcasting team reigns supreme. So please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, hang up and listen, Josh Levine, Mike Pesca, and Stefan Fatsis. And welcome to the stage, the Culture Gab Fest, Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and Stephen Metcalf. And finally, welcome to the stage, the Politics Gab Fest, David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson. All right, here's how tonight's show is going to work. We are going to do those three segments I just described, one for each Gab Fest, but other people on stage are welcomed, in fact, encouraged, in fact, required to butt in and join in the conversation. Then we will split our podcast teams into off-brand pairs uh, for a series of debates on crucial topics of the day. I wouldn't call them conundrums, right? That would be unfair to call them conundrums. But let's call them quandaries. We'll give them some quandaries that they can discuss. And you, our, our joyous, loving audience, will vote on which podcasters handle those debate topics better. So, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready? <laughs> Gabfessers, are you ready? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Way to bring it. Um, All right, so first off, to start off, President Obama and Congress are readying for a clash on immigration. Here to discuss it is the political GabFest. Take it away, David, Emily, and John. Hey. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be here. We have never been so close to an audience. I know. Physically, literally, figuratively. I know, this is like the... yeah, the yeah. effluent You guys should like row. fling things at us in no, addition please. to laughing and, and uh, shouting. We're really uh, glad to be here. So we're go- we we get the the unenviable task of having to lead with the serious part. So no, it's go- good because then we can sit back and, and not worry. All right. So uh, President Obama, is you may have heard, President Obama is is on the verge of making an announcement that he is going to change American immigration policy to the extent that he can. He is going to do 
various things that John is about to describe. And when he does that, we are going to then enter into a great moment of political warfare, which we will then discuss. But John, let's start with what is it that President Obama is likely to do? When is he likely to do it? And uh, why isn't he going to do more? Well, we don't know what he's going to do yet. So we don't know if he could... I mean, he's not going to do the whole thing because he can't do the whole thing. He can't just take all 11.3 undocumented workers and say, it's fine. You're okay. You can stay here without trouble. What we do know he's contemplating is um, prioritizing the the, uh, deportations. And so what he may do is allow the parents of children who are already... uh, who are here uh, to no longer be under threat of deportation. There may also be an expansion of uh, some other programs that would protect more people. We're talking maybe 5 million um, undocumented workers would be uh, brought in under this protection. Now, when will he do it is a crucial question. Does he do it before the funding debate for funding uh, for the entire government for the next year, or does he wait till after that? Does he, is he spoiling for a fight? And this is the central question. I mean, this is about immigration, which is important. But this is also setting the table for the last two years. And for the 2016, Just I'm just trying to amp up why we're talking about this. Yeah. Um, and it will affect your children's future. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, it's, it's, you know, does he decide to have this big fight and then draw the Republicans into a big fight over funding the government, which they've threatened to do in retaliation, which means it's like a big hairball immediately. Uh, or does he go with a limited hairball um, and wait till after the government funding discussion has and happened? And if he provoked a big fight right now, wouldn't that feel like a really different move for him to make? A sign that the last two years of his presidency has truly done with continuing to push for bipartisan compromise, for really believing in that, and that he was going to be this very feisty, aggressive, more liberal, um, you know, Pugilistic president, which is not well, the president we're used to seeing. I know, it would but be you know, a sea change. It is like it is like Charlie Brown finally is not going to have the football pulled away. He's like not going to play. He's going to go. Yeah, he's well, going to go make his own. He's going to go get a box. Can come game. or not? Except that they could also just defund the whole football game and then <laughs> be stuck. Right, but then if they defund the football game and it gets into a big fight, uh, then he wins the football game. So, can we why? stop talking about football because that's I just the been listen, guys. I just wanted to so beat this until the horse turned into glue. Wait, like, can I just, why is it that, that the president so, – so what he's going to do, he's not going to – he can't make people citizens as far as I know. Right. Um, he, but he's, he's simply going to change the, the order in which the government pursues certain legal processes. Why is this, why is this legal or alternatively um, why – you know, why is this a big deal? Maybe this is not a big deal at all. Constitutionally, or- you mean? Because they're saying that he's basically ripping up the Constitution to do this. Is right. he? So let's take a little step back here. You know, until essentially 9-11 and really even after that, the United States did not deport hundreds of thousands of people a year. We had a lot of illegal immigrants. They lived here. If you were undocumented, you basically usually stayed. You were maybe a little nervous, but you did not face kind of imminent threat of deportation. You are then- our grandparents. Right. Then 9-11 happened. The government created the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and funded it very heavily. And when that happened, the, pr- the pressure to act, once you have all this money and all these ICE agents running around, they have to do something. So then the Bush administration started Secure Communities, which was supposed to be their program for deporting criminal undocumented people. And instead, the definition of criminal became more and more swollen to the point that Obama has been deporting 400,000 people a year. Most of them are, they're 
I think more than half, their only crime is crossing the border without permission. And then there's a big proportion of like driving without a license. So the number of truly dangerous, violent criminals we are deporting is, I think, between 15 and 18 percent. That is small. And yet we continue on as if all of the human tragedy and suffering that comes from these divided families is not moving. To and us. this goes back to David's point about Charlie Brown and football, which is to say that a lot of people believe the president did that as a way to make as to show a good make a good faith effort uh, to be tough about deportations as a way to buy goodwill with Republicans who he would then put a deal together and he would be shielded from people saying, well, this is really just somebody who wants to be easy on lawbreakers. And it and worked yet with he, the Senate. They passed right. his legislation, but it failed with the House. And I think finally he seems to but, be fed up. Right? Can I go back to the but back to your original point, which is. That this has uh, maybe this has nothing to do with immigration. Maybe this is about he's basically saying I tried to work with Republicans on various deals over time, being the person that I campaigned as. That didn't work, so now I'm going to actually try and get something done by pushing through the other direction. Right, but it seems to me it, he picks. If he wants to pick a fight, this is an excellent fight to pick because of the demographics that you create this sense the Democrats are the party who care about the voters, the the issues Latino voters, and they're creating more Latino voters, presumably, at least in the longer term, and certainly enhancing their appeal. And so it seems like it does have everything to do with immigration, although it also is the way for him to just assert himself at this moment. So, Emily, the the question has been... Uh, President Obama's justification for all this is, I have enforced the laws, as John just described, and I pushed for a bill. The bill passed the Senate, and we have a legislature that refuses to act. They refuse to function. I will not sit by while this national catastrophe continues. I'm going to act. And therefore, he's going to take executive action. He's... Which, which is legal, you believe. It's really inaction, it's, right? He's going to announce ahead of time what his deportation priorities and non-priorities right. are, as opposed to simply only deporting some of the people, which he would have done anyway, but not without... But the difference here is this idea that you make this policy announcement that then lets some category of... It's sort of, I am not enforcing the law for this particular group of people, as opposed to, I always right. enforce the law selectively because that's what... Government agency. And then he adds a spoonful of sugar with the, to, to the extent that he's trying to buy off his opponents by saying, I'll take the money I would have spent deporting these families or tearing up these families, and I'll put it at the border. So he's trying to basically say, I'm pro-family, pro pro-type border, now argue against but, that. Okay, but, so let's, but let's go to the sort of more basic question, which is, isn't it disturbing to have a president governing by executive decree? Even if, we, if, if the even if they're, it's do, the president is doing that because the legislature is non-functioning. But we're in a very dangerous situation. We happen to be lucky right now that we, the party that holds the executive branch is not as interested in executive power as the party that doesn't hold the executive well, branch. Well, depends how you define that. I don't that. know. No. <laughs> no, the re- Republic, I mean, a Republican president's Republican presidents will use the executive authority much more extensively than Democratic presidents Right, will. but to actually further your uh, argument, if Obama... But it's bad in either case. Well, Who's going to take your argument for you? Go back. I mean, look at the trajectory. If Obama does this, takes dramatic executive action on immigration, look at his record with the National Security Agency, with not, you know, in any way investigating torture under the Bush administration. There are a number of the non-binding climate change. I mean, it's non-binding, but still, these are really strong presidential moves. And so arguably, 
he is going to leave behind a legacy of a very emboldened presidency. And, and, and he is just as forceful about that as George W. Bush was. Right, but to David's point, so shouldn't you be nervous when a president right. is using uh, tools of his office because you don't want them to have that kind of power anyway? Um, oh, I, I think there are Libya two reasons. Right. Well, but I mean, uh, the, but you would say in those yeah, instances more. it was bad and there, there should be debate. And therefore, why isn't that the case in this case? Right. So I feel somewhat hypocritical about this because I get worried about Libya and Syria and things that's and other than and certainly the NSA. But then when President Obama wants to do something that seems sort of nice and cheery to me, like immigration reform, I sit back and sort of don't worry too much about. Well, yeah, and but, I do think but, you're right. Well, here's the, a way. But here's a way to w- get yourself out of that. Well, I think one thing okay. it's a bad bad way to make law. It's a it's a bad way to make law because the next president can come in and say I'm going to undo this. Yeah, so you fishtail, they won't, right? Well, because it's too politically. Yeah. But if they've just won re-election, they're they probably figured out how to solve the that political problem? problem just like 10 days ago. But um, guys, I think Dana has a question behind you. But hold on, wait, let me make the oh, the second point before we uh, it, so it's only it'll that. just take me 14 or 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> the uh, but um, Oh, the other point, though, David, is what if in the sclerotic system we have where nothing gets done, um, is it okay just to kind of get things going if you have a president, you know, reach as far as they can, and then a strong legislature comes right after him like hammer and claw and tooth and nail that. and all the rest? I'm going to answer that in one second okay. after Dana does, cause, but I, have a, I really wanted to answer that question. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt your flow there, David. No, this is a, just actually a factual question about the executive Uh-oh. order. So the... the <laughs> Blowing our cover. We're going to get you back in emoji land, honey. I know I'm going to. There's going to be an emoji quiz. Yeah. No, Dickerson is going to know this. This is exactly the kind of thing Uh, he always does. Oh, no. My little my little emoji is like a spotlight. And uh, anyway, go ahead. At least I'm not no, wearing so, pajamas. So the immigration reforms under Clinton, there were some very significant start. immigration reforms under Clinton, correct? That were more sweeping than these. Were those by executive order? And what was the history of those? Were they did they land as badly? <laughs> well, yeah. So there, yes, previous presidents have done a version of the same thing, and so there's precedent within the executive to do that. I, I guess I don't have to do this, do I? So there is precedent with pr- previous presidents, but I don't think it's the size, although we don't know what he's done yet. Um, and and also, you don't. Carter is the biggest historical example, right? Well, the, under under Reagan under in '86, but that was a piece of legi- actual legislation. Okay. So, um, but you also just didn't have the climate you have right now. I mean, part of this is. Uh, it's just come after an election, and so conservatives believe, feel like there should be some heed paid to the message of the election, although E.J. Dion made an interesting case in the Post, I think it was today, and his argument was it's a, it requires a little bit of backbending to get this argument, but it's interesting. He says basically this election, the people who didn't turn out for the president's party did not turn out because he didn't do anything on immigration. He didn't stand up, and, and, uh, and, and other Democrats didn't stand up for the ideals they believe in. Therefore, they didn't turn out. Therefore, the message of the election is do things that this huge group of voters who voted for you in the presidential years want – and so that's the message that the president could take from the election. You could take so. a lot of those messages, though, all the things he didn't do. Sure. Everything yeah, that's well, not it's a, done. It's a nice well, way to grant yourself this license. Goes, well, yeah. this goes to the point that I wanted to make, John, just and maybe we'll wrap around this, is that there's this a political philosopher at, at Yale who just died, Juan Linz. And Linz has had this studied Latin American governments, which have a similar structure to us. They usually have an elect, a president who's elected... Uh, 
with a popular election than a legislature that's elected separately, unlike a, the UK where there's a parliamentary system and, and there's one, basically one body is deciding government. And he found by looking at places that have these, these where there are two sources of power, each of which is legitimate, those are incredibly unstable governments. And the big exception to that for a long time was the United States. The United States had a strong, stable uh, democratic government, we, even though you had the president and the legislatures elected separately and with separate power sources. But we have, we have reached this point where we're totally calcified, and these two, they're each legit, the president has a legitimate source of power, the Congress has a legitimate source of power, neither of them really recognizes that the other the other's power, and we're, they're in a standoff, and it's well, not clear that this is... That it gets resolved because, by the presidents taking executive action and moving towards more dictatorial methods, or by, you know, I don't know, I mean, I'm a, a Congress that, that sort of well, starts to act... I mean, this goes to a larger fear, which is that our constitutional system of government is right. essentially broken. Right. And we just are too attached to it to admit it. But we've had other larger, more catastrophic events where presidents have tried... I mean, when FDR tried to pack the courts... That was really playing. I mean, that, we, we haven't seen this play out. What Obama's doing here is relatively small relative to what presidents have done. Think of what Lincoln did during John, the Civil Lincoln, War. John, that was a civil war. Well, okay, we had FDR to go to war okay, to resolve. I mean, that's serious. That is the two examples you can Lincoln think of are ones that occurred in the, no, no, no. the most profound national crisis. No, no, no. One of which See, was FDR resolved didn't pack by the World War II. Because of the war. The other, FDR didn't no, pack I know. That was he packed pre- the courts to do whatever the hell he wanted, which is totally political. But the war resolves a lot of the kind of... It didn't resolve that. He was beaten back. No, he was beaten by that. But there were simmering conflicts that exist in America in the 1930s are resolved by World War II, as in the Civil the Civil War resolves the incredible political showdown that happens in the 1850s. We need but, we're going to have to have a catastrophic event to resolve the political sta- the political Obama catastrophe. We're having. The thing was that not because of Obama grants amnesty, that, but it's, it's just a general. You yeah, can make a cumulative right. argument, but I don't know. I feel like there's a way in which I don't know if it's indifference or just there's no other choice. But it seems to me that. The the only way in which government functions right now is for the president to kind of yank it along. I mean, even the Affordable Care Act, which I know everybody in the end passed, was so much driven by the executive branch. Well, yeah, my point is that the Constitution and the government was founded on the idea that there would be huge clashes. We've had periods in history where there are massive clashes, where presidents veto bills, where Congress threatens to do all kinds of terrible things, and they ultimately get worked out. We are at, like... The first inning of this game hasn't even begun. Right, We're like true. still in the clubhouse. People still don't even, they don't even have their socks on yet. And I so guess my true. point is You're, that that's there's, too optimistic. Jeff. There's, but. well, I, I need, one need not have optimism or pessimism. They're not even in the dugout. You don't have, like, they're not Why even there. You don't even know. Metaphors. We were playing but, football. <laughs> Because, because football is such a, a screwed up metaphor, we have to move to a whole new game. When they and do games, right, and right, games and, and, and baseball. Right Hang up and listen. I need the politics gap fast. <laughs> I, I, uh, I just marked off my gap fest bingo card when Emily said. Let's take a step back here for a second. I just made a little X. I get bingo if Metcalf quotes Thomas Jefferson. All right, so the home team, the Culture Gap Fest, discussing emojis. Are they the future of communication? As argued by Adam Sternberg in this week's issue of New York Magazine. Or do they... <laughs> Let's find out from the Culture Gap Fest. Thank you. 
the earth belongs in usufruct to the living. <laughs> That's, uh, it's Jefferson. Uh, I just wanted to say a couple things very quickly before we dig in. The first is uh, the happiest moment of my life happened in this venue. That's a true story, and I'll tell it later for those who join us for a drink uh, afterwards. Um, uh, just this past weekend, another trip, very quickly, sorry, but um, you just ficus it up over there while I, <laughs> while I tell uh, boring stories. But uh, uh, this old friend of mine came by the, uh, this past weekend uh, with her 11-year-old daughter, who um, my daughter actually hadn't laid eyes on since they were both infants side by side in a, in a, a couple of strollers in uh, Cobble Hill Park. And... Um, uh, it was, it, she's turned into this you sprouted up this huge beautiful young uh, woman really and you're always wondering is my kid going to get along with this other kid and what's it going to be like is the afternoon going to be kind of torture and, or are they going to get along incredibly well and then the whole thing just moves along noiselessly they got along so beautifully and she was just the most elegantly turned out wonderful young girl and as she was leaving I said Georgia it's been it's been so great to see you. And she turned to me, and the first thing she said to me all afternoon was, I have a bone to pick with you about Taylor Swift. <laughs> she looked at me. She was right in the eye. I was like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Who knew? Taylor, Tay-Tay. <laughs> I knew Steve. I knew, and I told you. <laughs> okay, Julia Turner, did you... So Julia Turner, did you know that the OED has just come out with an emoji of the year? I did not. Well, they didn't, and you want to know why? <laughs> because it's a fucking emoji, that's why. <laughs> Here's how written language evolved. <laughs> From pictograms to logograms and ideograms to alphabets, the alphabet is... Alphabets are arguably the single greatest human invention from degenerate inputs of only 20 or so letters. You can generate everything from the Gettysburg Address to Hamlet to a think piece about emojis <laughs> that you made me talk about tonight, Julia Turner. <laughs> Wait, is everyone Chinese going to storm out now because they don't use an alphabet and Steve just put down your writing system? Oh. <laughs> Taylor Swift suck. <laughs> Emoji as a group are now used more frequently on Twitter than our hyphens or the numeral five. I think it's five. I actually cut the sentence off by mistake. But <laughs> fill in your least favorite, uh, zero through nine. So writes Adam Sternberg in the latest issue of New York Magazine. Let me say, uh, by the way, we are huge fans of Adam Sternberg. Nothing that follows is a, a, a aspersion implied or otherwise upon him. Um, he wrote this about those little decal-like smiley facial expressions that are taking over digital communication. If I ever need a pictogrammatic emotional intensifier for yo, Derek totally bo booty called me last night, I now know where to look. Grimace, smile, wink. Never, nevertheless, one can't help wondering, Julia Turner, are we regressing back with these linguistically? Or are we evolving forward, JT, baby? I mean, Steve, of course I'm pro-emoji. <laughs> I have to be pro-emoji. I just really was excited about getting you to come up on stage and talk about these little yellow men. But here is why I was excited to get you to talk about emoji. is basically because I would like you to use emoji. And as we were having a text exchange yesterday afternoon debating whether we should do this segment or not, during which I resorted to emoji as a mode of persuasion, um, <laughs> Steve texted me, how do I get emojis on my phone? <laughs> At which point, in true story, my 12-year-old daughter grabbed my phone and went, beep, 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 
Greek and handed it back to me with a look of utter contempt. But I think that's, I, I do think that that's kind of crucial to understanding the, the beauty and promise and honestly, I'm going to say it straight face poetry of emoji, which is if you do not use them, they seem like, they seem like these garish yellow men who have these very obvious and stupid facial expressions, which is like, why would I append a smiley face to my sentence? I should be able to express with the sheer power of my prose whether I feel happy or not. Um, But what you find when you unlock the emoji alphabet on whatever operating system you use is this very strange set of pictographs, which is universal, which allows you to communicate across devices and across countries, that is both capacious, it's between seven and 800 characters, there's some definitional arguments there that we don't need to get into, but not infinite. So you can't be literal, right? I mean, you can, you can put the happy face, but the more interesting emoji and the ways that are fun to use emoji are to pick something unexpected, like the two little dancing girls kicking sideways, or um, you know, I'm, per- I'm particular to the stalk of wheatgrass blowing in the breeze, um, and to use that in an unexpected context. And what you're doing there when you start playing with these linguistic elements is creating little puzzles for your correspondence to decode and you're doing all the things that you do when you play with language you just have these additional symbols to add and it's so fun and I think if you tried them you would not sneer but, but, the, but the 722 symbols don't recombine infinitely to produce language yeah, I mean, okay, so you've caught me. I did not actually say that I think they are the future of language. I'm not, I don't think they're going to replace... Well, there's got to be a weird echo in here because I heard you say the word poetry. <laughs> uh... All right, you stew on that. I, I have a question for, okay. for Dana. Dana, I got one thing out of this. I, again, Adam Serberg is a terrific journalist. This, is not, this has everything to do with old man cranky pants and nothing to do with him. He wrote a great think piece about emoji, but I got one thing above all out of it, which is... Dana, you've been texting me eggplants at three in the morning for the last four years. <laughs> and now I know why. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's time for me to come back. <laughs> Steve, you're being very smiley, a swirl of poo right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, when Is there we decided. HR emoji. <laughs> Actually, there... I think it's the little girl with the X arms, and then one of those buildings that suggests office. <laughs> uh, there was uh, the moment where uh, where emoji rubber hit uh, Metcalf Road in this piece was when he <laughs> I like that uh, was when uh, he said. Uh, midway through it, he makes, I think, the large point about them, which is that they're not a substitute for uh, language. What they are is a a substitute for facial expressions. The problem people have had with email is that it um, sort of defines the exclamation point down. That there's an inherent tonelessness to email that gets people in trouble. Uh, It just sounds deadpan and, you know, like I I could give a crap about, um, you know, what I'm saying. Uh, which, <laughs> the joke is so obvious I'm not even going to make it but, um, but that it seems to me is true that people are people are living more and more intimate lives more and more in absentia and they need this device uh, to uh, uh, compensate 
for that absence. Is that what you thought is the essence of emoji or no? And I think that's, that's an important element, that there's a, it's an affective marker. It's a way to throw little bombs of affect into your, your texts or emails. Also, I mean, nobody likes to sit around on that tiny keyboard typing out long words. You know, it's a way of making shorthand. When we decided to talk about this yesterday, I, I knew that Steve was going to bring in some kind of declinist argument about emojis, and all I can say is... It's, it's senseless in regard to emojis to think of them as a replacement for language or anything like that. It's like saying Morse code is going to be the end of human communication. They're, they're an alternate signifying system. <laughs> <laughs> Don't well, you? I mean, poetry, I'm trying to think of poetry as the right word, but I do think that there's... Here's what I like about emoji. There's a fundamental interpretability to them. And, and because they're not infinite, because they're not literal, and because they're not language, because they are these little bombs of affect, they create these bonds between you and the recipient as you send something and have a little bit of faith that they'll interpret it in the way that you think they will. It's, a, it's like a little... I don't know, it's an exciting little connective leap, like the waving stalk of wheatgrass, which actually, if you look at the history of it, it means ear of rice, and you, you, ear of rice is something in like some Japanese celebration of some ritual. But as, as rendered on the Apple operating system, it looks kind of like a stalk of dune grass from a northeast beach. And so my sister and I sent it back and forth to mean like, ah, things are kind of peaceful, pretend you're on a beach. Like if someone's having a stressful day, you might send a couple of stalks of grass to be like... It's like serenity now, like chill out. Like it's, but it doesn't mean that to anybody else. It's like this little little mood joke between the two of us, and it's fun and pleasant, and and like feels friendlier than sending. Don't worry, Maggie. I'm sorry you're having a stressful day. Everything's going to be okay someday. Once again, you'll be on a beach next to the infinitude of the ocean, and you'll be reminded mm. that life is endless and that the beauty of nature still exists, even if you're stressed about your job. It's just like. Boop. <laughs> And then she gets that. <laughs> yeah, that gets, that gets to something that I remember that I wanted to say about emojis, which is that, if anything, I don't think Sternberg does justice to how creatively people actually use them. And most of the citations in his piece are sort of like people reinforcing, right? You feel good, so you post a smiley face. And everyone I know who enjoys emojis and has fun with them and uses them playfully, uses them, and, and they could make rebuses out of them, right? Or you could, I have a friend who creates drawings out of them, so she'll do skull eyes and, you know, then scroll down and do a rose nose or something and create, like, little art out of them. There's so much to do with them besides just boringly reinforce the message that you've sent. They're kind of like a countertext that can play within your text. And I do, to the future of language point and, and the future, you know, whether they might ever replace the alphabet. I don't think they'll replace the alphabet, but the fact that they can speak globally, that they're universal across, you know, that, that they can... <laughs> Oh, he's taking his head in his hand. No, head, headline, you don't think it's going to replace the alphabet? I, someone I heard is doing Moby Dick in emoji. Yes. Will, will they teach that in your kid's high school by the time they're... No, I'm not... I, nobody's making that argument. If you want to go punch that straw man in a corner, you can. No, but... <laughs> but <laughs> I think I've been turned into the straw man here. Right? If, if I'm lucky, it's not a wicker man by the end of this... Uh, uh, I refuse to take the Heideggerian declinist uh, caricature of me that apparently everyone in this room fucking shares <laughs> and do anything but wear it as a beautiful badge of fucking honor. I, I actually think nothing has been lost because of these creepy little smiley faces insinuating themselves into the... I'm not going to say it. I was going to say something that even I... I don't even think it but wouldn't even say. Into the text of the subliterate. But can I say but but I don't even mean it. I don't. Oh, the faces! I love it. But I don't. Oh my god! There's something way creepier about having you all standing. When, 
when the ripple of discontent uh, flows through you like wind through a stalk of wheatgrass emoji. I don't think, look, people's expressive powers are, are unconquerably, they're resilient and they're going to survive even this segment. And I, I, I just don't think human communication is going to become degenerate. But to me, the issue is not that people are substituting an emoji for some beautiful turn of phrase that they might have put in there. To me, it really is just, it does, one should think about and take the measure of the fact that we now put a part of ourselves, we now mediate a part of not only ourselves, but our relationships with others in devices and digitally in a way that requires this kind of affirmative little ping uh, that these little things deliver. I, I only note that fact. I don't, I don't say it in a lugubrious German accent. Can we chew on that for a second? Stefan Fatsis has a, a comment. Speaking of German, Steve, we don't speak German. We don't have 48... And emojis do, in essence, in some instances, replace their additive to our language. They do allow us to convey emotions. And they allow me to communicate with my 12-year-old daughter in ways that she finds fun. No, and like my, my, my real self as opposed to my, my real self as opposed to my fake podcast persona self feels th- this way about it, which is, of course, that's a completely natural uh, human uh, creative use of this technology. Um, uh, period. Uh, period. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's my favorite emoji. <laughs> I, the, the gloves are the fucking gloves are off, Dickerson. <laughs> so you get to be the Daniel Craig of Slate. It's only when someone makes too large an argument about emojis somehow becoming a new communicative and serious and profound communicative medium that some of my hackles get raised. But I think in that discussion, I don't think I'm the straw man. Dead silence. (laughs) Quice. All right. Let's give it up for the Culture Gap Fest, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hey, this is Dan backstage at the Music Hall of Williamsburg during the Slate Superfest East. This podcast is brought to you by Acura and the all-new 2015 TLX Luxury Performance Sedan. For decades, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than the latest evolution. Rather, it's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy. It's power and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go, changing the way wheels move and guide you. It's uncompromised design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. It's that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at Acura.com slash TLX, or better yet, experience the thrill for yourself and take a test drive at your local Acura dealer. Now, back to the Superfest. And finally, to discuss sports betting, we have Hang Up and Listen. Is NBA Commissioner Adam Silver's op-ed in the Times making the NBA the first major American pro sport to support legalized sports gambling? Is it a big deal? Is it a principled stand or a cash grab? Is it a principled cash grab? Let's hear it, Hang Up and Listen. Thank you, Dan. It is an honor to be following the George Lazenby of Slate. Um, 
Um, you should have gotten your uh, uh, GabFest betting cards when you came on, uh, on the way into the show. If you had Emily Bazelon saying, and then 9-11 happened, <laughs> collect at the back bar. If you, had, if you had David Plotz fomenting World War III, <laughs> collect at the back bar. If you had Steve Metcalf being the first GabFest to be torn limb from limb, you, you will not collect. <laughs> that, that's the one in the middle that everyone gets is a free right. space. Yeah. Free. <laughs> the defenestration of Metcalf. <laughs> that is the free parking. Yes. Um, all right. As, um, as our host mentioned, uh, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, mentioned in an op-ed last week that it's time to take a different approach to sports betting in the United States. You don't hear a commissioner of a major sports league saying this, that it's time to make betting legal. You've had Roger Goodell. You've had Gary Bettman. You've had David Stern, Silver's uh, predecessor for many years, basically acting like if sports betting was legalized, then the world would end, that this was like the nuclear option, that you know the integrity of the game would be challenged. But Silver is saying in The Times, uh, Stefan, that this is something that should happen. Um, there's also the situation in New Jersey. I don't know if any of you guys are planning to go to Jersey to lay sports bets this weekend, but there's going to be a, a, a court case this week that could happen. You could go to Jersey on Sunday to bet your life savings against the Jets. Um, <laughs> and if it doesn't happen, you can go to Delaware. We'll talk about that. Um, so, Stefan, why is Adam Silver, the new NBA commissioner, saying this now when so many commissioners before him were not? Because I think that leagues are principally looking for revenue and gambling if the writing is on the wall the social clock is ticking toward the acceptance of gambling as something that that you know that that people are going to want to support that fans can get behind that leagues are going to find socially palatable it is part of the sort of creep in society where things that we considered vices many years ago are starting to become more acceptable leagues didn't allow sponsorship from hard alcohol that is now fine uh, leagues didn't uh, have alliances with fantasy sports companies that is pronounced in on the team level and the league level and i think adam silver and the nba are getting ahead of this in terms of their um their support for finding ways for new revenue sources. And this could be a monumentally huge source of revenue for, for professional sports leagues. So, uh, Mike, the cynical view is that commissioners uh, prior to silver sports leagues didn't want to encourage this because they had no way to get a cut of the revenue, that they couldn't, um, you know, that this money is going to the state of New Jersey, the money is going to the sports books in Nevada. Should we be cynical? Should we think that the leagues are now more interested because, you know, the NBA just signed this deal with FanDuel. They've sponsored our show. It's a daily fantasy contest where people pay money and the NBA now has kind of a stake in this company. Are they now realizing we can get a cut of this and that time is about to come. Well, of course they're cynical because cynicism is the belief that everyone is motivated by self-interest. So it's almost tautological to say, are they self-interested because they're self-interested? Sure, of course they're self-interested. I think what was going on, let's you know, go back to 1919 or before the Black Sox scandal. Kennesaw Mountain Landis invited to be the first commissioner of baseball. Really had to clean up the league, cut to the 1950s, a lot of gambling scandals in between, but there were these point-shaving scandals in basketball. So it was a legitimate thing. Games weren't on the up-and-up players weren't paid that well, and you really could throw games. But it's a ridiculous prospect with the pros. The, uh, the, the NCAA is in its own 
Mishigas category. But the the pros really for a long time had to worry about games being perceived as not on the up and up. But that hasn't been true for 20 years. And what I think is going on is that the NFL is leading the charge and they're just hidebound. They're just behind the times. They're not even progressive enough, my God, to have a Jewish commissioner like every other sports league does. Right? They're very waspy. So then... Hyman Roth comes in and says, what's a little gambling? No, Adam Silver. (laughs) Adam Silver is saying the thing that's non-hypocritical, the thing that's logical, but I don't think it's going to usher in some um, PAX NBA on a... I don't think that it's going to usher in some great period. I think it'll just, like he says, bring an illegal activity out of the shadows. There'll be some good that comes with that and also a lot of money for the leagues. Let's not conflate the issue of gambling with the issue of throwing games too much. Tim Donahue, NBA ref, went to prison, um, accused his fellow refs of definitely throwing games, not for gambling purposes, but because the league wanted teams to win or lose. Um, 2002 Lakers. 2002 Lakers, yes. Game six against the Kings. Um, Disgusting. So it's not it's not it's not just about that because you know the integrity of the sports and and Adam Silver included these lines in his op-ed. We're concerned about the integrity of the sport. We don't want to do anything that would that would threaten the integrity of our game. There would be safeguards and regulations. But whether gambling is legal or illegal, that threat exists. It exists in Europe where gambling is very very legal. The NFL plays games in London where you can walk into a into a into a betting parlor and lay down money on NFL games. Yeah. Um there have been scandals in world soccer, there have been scandals in tennis, there have been scandals in all sports. The way illegal sports fixing works is that the illegal gamblers use the legal system to make market and to, to tilt the but odds. legalized gambling allows you to raise red flags. So when Arizona right. State, which is a real thing, a guy was shaving points. There was so much money coming in on Arizona State. This is, by the way, guys, this is like the FDR packing the courts of sports gambling. <laughs> there was so much money coming in on Arizona State. So it's good. It's happened with the tennis scandal, too. I sure. mean, there are some good things that can come from legal sports gambling. There are basically fewer bad things. By the way, illegal sports gambling will still exist because bookies are also loan sharks and you could bet on credit so people will continue to and use bookies the illegal will want to give yeah. better odds Emily Bazelon with a legal perspective so I don't care about shaving points or sports scandals since I don't care about sports but I <laughs> thank you <laughs> then, Emily Bazelon no, we no, don't I care about politics Emily you can't stop me now but the nanny state I'm here legally so I don't care about your argument yeah, yeah. <laughs> the nanny state um, side of me worries about creating a more main mainstream pastime for gambling, which is already a pastime that takes a lot of money out of the pockets of poor people, gives them nothing back. And then the actual... Mom, mom in me worries about my own boys, 14 yeah. and 11. They're obsessed with ESPN. They talk way too much about fantasy football, no matter how many times so Mike worry, tells them not to. Worry about, as a Connecticut resident, worry about Mohegan Sun, worry about Foxwoods, worry about the incursion of gambling, real sitting in front of a slot machine gambling. I really think that that affects your brain. I mean, these are why slot machines are wired like they are. Gambling is so pervasive. This was another one of Silver's arguments. It's everywhere. If anything, sports gambling which people could seek out anyway. We're not talking about the difference between gambling and no gambling. We're not talking about the difference between sports gambling and other gambling. We're talking about legal sports gambling or very widespread illegal sports gambling. Giving those two choices, legal sports gambling is the better choice. Do you think, though, 
that illegal sports gambling is really mainstream and it's, everybody does it? I don't know. Okay. Who's in a fantasy right. sports league here? Let's give it up for no, illegal sports, sports gambling. It's not, it's not the fantasy leagues. It's betting on football. Sure. Who's it's laid a bet with, on a football yeah, game? It's betting with a point spread. But with your friends or like with the bookie? With, so according to uh, Silver... My friends are bookies. Uh, he quoted... <laughs> He quoted a statistic saying that there's $400 billion bet illegally in the U.S. each year on sports. That, to me, seems like the most farcical statistic that I've ever heard in my entire life. Mike, there, I Googled how many adults are there in the United States. Yeah. This well, is my research for the show. There are about $240 million. Right. I figured, okay, Dana Stevens is good for at least a billion on hockey. Right. <laughs> All right, but then you've got the 200. Flames giving up two and a half pucks against the Jets, Stevens. Book it. But if you have like, if you even have a hundred million people betting, that's like four thousand people. Each person is dropping four thousand a year on illegal sports betting. This seems ridiculous. Michael Jordan to me. does a lot of it, and then the rest is everyone else. I think he's probably using everyone who ever filled out a box on the Super Bowl. You know, everyone who bet ten or a hundred bucks on that. But it doesn't matter. It's it's a huge number. Um, and they'll be able to make a lot of money off it. You know, the English and that's pre- the bottom line. The English Mike. Premier League, every team has a sports gambling site on its jersey. The, the NBA... Or Fly Emirates. Sorry, God. The, the WNBA Mohegan Sun, the casino of the Mohegan Sun, owns and sponsors the Connecticut Sun of the WNBA. There are athletes that have sponsorships with fantasy sites. There are teams and leagues that now have sponsorships with what are effectively gambling sites. What will change here is that it'll allow regulation so that states, if it's federally approved would allow states to collect hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue annually and it would allow leagues to take a piece a cut of of betting and i think what the leagues will try to do is basically charge licensing fees for their data and they will charge for sponsorships so that you can get uh, casinos and sports books as sponsors of teams and isn't everyone here for freedom don't you want to be able don't you want to be able to take your smartphone and, you know, if this segment's not going very well, just look at what the line is on the Knicks game, bet against them. Um, from what I understand, you know, Harry reads out of the Senate, a lot of the reason that, um, you know, gambling is not allowed anywhere but Nevada is, like, Sheldon Adelson, um, other land-based casino owners don't want online betting. Harry Reid is in this extremely powerful position in the Senate. He's out now. So I've read speculation. I'm just the sports guy. Um, <laughs> He's out of Senate Majority Leader. He's out Josh of, knows. He's, he's no longer guy. the Majority Leader. Um, but that there might actually be, um, you know, there, there could be the time now to have federal legislation legalizing sports betting or other kinds of, of betting. I don't know if you guys think that might be true. Might not be true. Well, it's, it's not only that, those interests. It's the Kentucky horse interests who like their carves, carve-outs. A lot of the... Uh, and Nevada likes its carve-out yeah. right now. Yeah. But... Um, the, the, you know, federal law aspect of it is a little wonky, but all they have to do, and Silver wrote the editorial to specifically say, hey, let's not let New Jersey do what it's doing. Let's pass a federal law. But really, the feds could look the other way if New Jersey wants to have legal gambling and uh, in one racetrack, the Monmouth racetrack. All right. Thank you very much. Hang up and listen. <laughs> All right, so while Rudy David Plotz rearranges the chairs, we 
have an exciting fourth segment tonight. We are not doing cocktail chatter. We're not doing recommendations. We're not doing triumphs and fails or anything like that. Uh, Dan, um, it's called endorsements. <laughs> potato, potato. But I want to shake up our venerable podcasting trios um, and make them debate some crucial life-changing topics, some quandaries, as it were. I will assign teams of two to debate against each other. I will assign topics. I will even assign debate team style, the stance each team will take, the argument each team will make. You, the audience, will vote as to which team made the argument more elegantly, more perfectly. The debates will be three minutes long, as measured on my telephone. If someone does not talk during those three minutes, they will be duly shamed afterwards. For Quandary One, can I please have David and Mike versus Emily and Julia up on the stage. All right, so this uh, quandary... Ladies ladies first, right? (laughs) Because that really worked well for us. Uh, This quandary comes actually straight from the uh, conundrums uh, that were suggested. This is a conundrum that I really liked, that I stole for this purpose that was suggested by a listener. All right, the question is, if you were granted the godlike power to do one but not both of these things, would you choose to end global warming or cure cancer? David Plotz and Mike Pesca, you will cure cancer. Emily Bazelon and Julia Turner, you will end global warming. Plotz and Pesca will go first. You have three minutes. Ready, go. To quote our esteemed Senator James Inhofe, since global warming is a myth anyway. (laughs) I mean, this isn't going to play in Williamsburg, but it's a really compelling argument in some parts of the country. I don't think... No, Mike, this is not... let's, Let's take that where it goes. Global warming is not... It is not affecting the United States in a serious way. I'm concerned about us. I'm concerned about you and me and my family. And what's affecting us is something like cancer is is a scourge that that affects every family in here. And to to wipe that away, to wipe that, versus the the, the vague possibility that that it'll be nicer nicer beach weather in the future seems to me me a no-brainer. You know what they say? They say global warming is like a cancer on the earth. I've never heard it the other way around. Go. You know, one of the biggest problems we have as a society is our unwillingness to address long-term problems because we are so focused on the here and now. This global warming is the issue that for our children and grandchildren is going to transform how they live. It is, you worry all the time about World War III and apocalypse. This is our coming apocalypse. And cancer, terrible as it is, is something we have learned to live with as a society. It kills an expected, predictable number of people. It doesn't need to do this that, This is completely... <laughs> <laughs> this Under is the... our godship, it wouldn't. <laughs> All right, here's an argument for, for practicality. Because there is this incredible self-interest in curing cancer, because there's a lot of money inv- available, like if you came up with a cure for cancer, you, you could be incentivized to do that in our current capitalist market system, right? Like people are working hard right now on cures for cancer because there is a huge market for cures for cancer because of the exact thing that Emily specifies. People care about their own families and about making them safe and about protecting their loved ones. It's much harder to motivate and mobilize people around these long-term issues nope. that are affecting generations ahead. Let me finish my point, David Plotz. Um, and... <laughs> The worm has turned. Stalk of wheatgrass, Julia. Well done. 
<laughs> and, you know, so, so the question is not what would you rather do? The question is if you were a god who could do something in one stroke, why wouldn't you take care of the thing that humankind is unable to take but care of know, for itself? Julia, you oh, want to know why? So no, 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 no. Yes. Do you want to know why, Julia? Why is it that people want to cure cancer? They want to cure cancer because it has a devastating immediate impact on their personal lives. 30 seconds. And that's why they want to cure it. Global warming will lower quality of life in some small way in the future. <laughs> Cancer is immediately taking loved ones away. So, of course, people spend money to try to cure it. We don't have to spend money. We can just do it. So let's do it today. I wanna, you, if you go to your doctor and he says, you have stage four cancer, you're going to die. If you go to your doctor and you say, don't worry about global warming, he'll say, move inland. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Quandary one. Wait, stay where you are, please. By audience vote, who would agree with David and Mike to cure cancer? <laughs> Come on, smokers, let me hear from you. <laughs> and who agrees with Emily and Julia to cure global warming? <laughs> Congratulations to our winners. All right, can I have John and Dana versus Stefan and Steven, please? Stefan. Stefan. I know, but I like calling you Stefan. <laughs> Stefan and Stephen. All right. Don't start. I'm, By the way, also, I don't want to. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, my, uh, John, you have your pen and paper? My, my microphone's having issues. In the, in the yeah, meantime. Yeah, no, get somebody with an emoji in here. I don't want to bring the room down with a little bit of a fact check, but I heard the sentence. Global warming is not affecting the United States in any serious way. It inspired the movie Interstellar. <laughs> it's true. Fight the real enemy. I mean... <laughs> you kind of liked that movie, Steve. What's that? You said you kind of liked that movie last week. <laughs> Quadri 2. It's a new week. Ready. Hey, who's going check. first? Well, I'll let you know as soon as I let okay. you know what you're arguing. <laughs> Unless you don't even care. <laughs> I'm feeling Just the bring of, them on. I'm feeling the effects of global warming on this I stage. I know. Right. All right. If only Steaming. one musician's work could ever be played again for all of human history, <laughs> should it be Billy Joel or Beethoven? Dana and John, you are arguing Billy Joel. Steve and Stefan, you are arguing Beethoven. Beethoven will begin. Go, Steve and Stefan. Me? <laughs> we have to speak, right? I, we have, have to, to say, say words. Something? Yeah, you have to say words. All right. <laughs> you know, just say Hodor. I, I, did you? Yeah, Hodor. <laughs> Hodor. <laughs> you did say Beethoven and Billy Joel. Yeah. You're Beethoven. And we're Beethoven. I'm, and I'm Beethoven. <laughs> like you're looking at your paper like there's something on it. <laughs> I, I, I can't get my head around it exactly, but. How it's or meet Nat, I think. But um, well, I, I, what can one say other than um, <laughs> not much? <laughs> Apparently, not much at all. Do you want me to go? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to pick one piano man in the world, in all of human history, who would you pick? <laughs> uh, you can retire. Okay. 
isn't it it self-disqualifying as a Beethoven fan to know any of the names of a Billy Joel song? (laughs) Or am I arguing against cause? My issue is simply that if we sat in John Cage-like silence for 30 seconds, we won the debate. So I was just (laughs) trying not to flub it. Go. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll have to seize the Julia Turner banner here and just wave the flag of pop music and say that we live in the 21st century, not the 19th century. (laughs) And that we need... <laughs> we need to move forward with the music of a man Towards who can articulate Allentown. the human well, experience as we experience it today. That's right. A man of bar rooms and rich experience as it's da- lived in the daily push and pull of life. As opposed, to, as opposed to the background music of elevators and waiting rooms. What happens in a, in a doctor's waiting room? You sit there. Uh, I mean, if you're like, uh, I mean, unless you're pro-cancer like the, the, the others were. <laughs> Uh, you sit there waiting for, you know, death's icy hand to come around your throat. And in that moment, you want to live in those great experiences you had, all of which are captured in Billy Joel songs, as opposed to sitting there waiting for the diagnosis, which comes to the soundtrack of dun-dun-dun-dun or whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, dun-dun-dun-dun. That doesn't inspire happiness and uplift. That inspires, you know, a scythe and a, and a hood. If I want to drink, drink a bottle of red, a bottle of white, <laughs> I would rather do it while listening to Beethoven than yeah. Billy Joel. But, but you the, see, he has infected you to but, your marrow. You can't stop quoting him. It's Your like some kind of, stop quoting him. It's like a tr- it's us. like Tourette's of Billy Joel. <laughs> the problem is you're not gaming it out, okay? Imagine now that the only musical sound left to humanity is Uptown Girl. Yeah. <laughs> Allentown. You know, give me give me a real schmaltzo. What's like we didn't know, start the fire? We didn't start the, the fire. fire. Yes, but but, but, but wait a but, second. Okay. Wait a second. You know. I live very near the Turingham Valley where the Shakers lived, and they wanted you to shake the carnality out of you. And effectively what they wanted was to proselytize so effectively that no one would ever reproduce again, right? They never... They were chased. Chased as a Turingham Shaker, as we say, in my house. But (laughs) think what would happen to the human species if all they had were Billy Joel songs to listen to going forward. The, they would the be hum- constantly <laughs> humping as opposed to Beethoven where they would be just, it would be soporific. They wouldn't they, make it into the bedroom. They'd want, be just prostrate want, in the hallway. Quandry too, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> By audience vote, do you vote for Team John and Dana, Team Billy Joel? <laughs> Or do you vote for Team Stefan and Steven, Team Beethoven? Closer than I expected, but it goes to Billy Joel. You didn't let me talk about the runnels of blood from people slitting their own throat. That's a Slate Plus bonus segment. Quadri 3, can I please have Josh and Dana versus David and Julia? All right, guys, welcome to the quandary room. Uh, A distant friend from, uh, like, your early 20s posts on Facebook something about how she is just still a fan of the Washington football team because everyone knows that Indians love the team and accept the name as as an expression of pride in our country's rich heritage. Do you comment 
Or do you just steer clear? Josh and Dana, you are arguing for commenting. Julia and David, you are arguing for steering clear. Julia and David will lead and go first. Please take it away. You know, you choose your battles, and the only battle that matters when it comes to the repulsive name of Washington football teams is with Dan Snyder. It doesn't matter. Your friend's belief, your friend's misguided ideas, you can leave that alone. It's convincing Dan Snyder. And frankly, your, your post on Facebook is not going to convince Dan Snyder. It's just going to cause a fracture in your friendship. It's more important to preserve the social bond that you have than to, than to piss off your friend. Well, David clearly doesn't think that the grassroots matter. He doesn't think that Native Americans matter. He thinks that it's, he thinks that it's Dan Snyder's decision. It's his issue. If he is the one who you know, thinks that this should be the team's name, it's really you should take it to him. You shouldn't talk to Native Americans. You shouldn't talk to Josh, your friends Josh, on Facebook. I, was, I wasn't going to be the one to play the race card, but I'm a Native American. <laughs> It's my turn now. Um, I mean, no productive debate has ever had on Facebook, Josh. To suggest that my partner here is advocating for ignoring the voices of the people, that's just simply not true. You're misrepresenting his position. Uh, Obviously, we should have a full and and, and frothsome debate about this (laughs) In, in many venues. But on Facebook, with a polarized issue like this, you just end up with bitter, vitriolic back and forth that do not advance discussion. Meet your friend face to face, um, show them the error of their ways, talk to them about it in person over, over a bottle of red and a bottle of white, send them a stock of wheatgrass, but, um, but, but a Facebook comment section, like, no good can happen there. So you're saying it would be okay if I commented on Facebook to say, let's have this discussion offline. So then you would agree with us that as long as <laughs> as long as you are getting that ball rolling... And, you know, if you believe that David Plotz is a Native American, by all means, <laughs> vote for their side. Definitely. Go for it. I have to say, I don't envy you two being on the side of defending the moral cowardice of letting a vile comment from your friend just stand unopposed <laughs> as hundreds, possibly thousands, if not millions of other people read it and pass it along when you could have stopped that in the bud. That post just got liked again. <laughs> Dana, I noticed during the last debate, I was sitting up there defending a morally reprehensible position. Did you speak up? Did you say one word? No, you sat there in silence. In silence. So what, where do you get off <laughs> holding us? 30 seconds. I was humming a Billy Joel song in my head. I'm sorry. I can't believe nobody noted that only one of Beethoven and Billy Joel was a character in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and it was not Billy Joel. <laughs> That's your closing statement on this? That is. In summation. Good job, everyone. All right, Quandary 3. Ladies and gentlemen, by audience vote, do you vote for make a comment on the post and fight Dana and Josh? Or do you vote for my comment doesn't matter, Plots and Turner? Plots and Turner take the day. <laughs> you guys that voted like, wrong. <laughs> I don't believe that. Nope. <laughs> Great debating, guys. All right. Before our last and final quandary, let me actually call our quandriers up. Um, Josh and John versus uh, Steve and Mike. <laughs> Um, and we just want to let you know, after this uh, final quandary, we are going to have a Q&A. 
Um, the microphone is going to be over there, just up the steps. There's someone waiting who you can't see, but she's there. Um, if you have a burning question and you would like to wade through thousands of drunken people <laughs> to ask it, please get over there during this final quandary. Quandary four. Um, all right, guys, are you ready? We're ready. When humanity finally destroys everything, I, the I, animals I, take over. <laughs> Should we hope that our animal overlords are bees or dolphins? <laughs> Steve and Mike, you will be arguing dolphins. Yes. Josh and John, you will be arguing bees. Josh and John will go first. Please take it away. Dolphin never made me food. Nor did it make a flower bloom. (laughs) Nor, yeah, nor did it whisper in... uh, (laughs) So our animal overlords would just be getting caught in nets. We would have to be saving them. (laughs) Well, first of all, I'd like to preface my remarks by honoring my forefathers, including (laughs) Chief Argues with Wolves. So thank you very much. We must acquiesce to the dolphin oversight. They have blowholes. They do tricks. You, have you ever heard of Flipper? He was a lovely, almost anthropomorphized dolphin. The bee equivalent of that is nothing. Maybe a Jerry Seinfeld. No, no, they, mur- they bees murmur by the hours in foxglove bells. <laughs> I would like in to. In truth, ad- the prison in which we doom ourselves is no prison is. Yes, but to quote another poet. Hence for me, in past time, was it bound to be? <laughs> But to quote, in tune to this emoji's little plot of land. But to quote, but to quote another poet, including the blowfish, the dolphins make me cry. Mm-hmm. Also, when the dolphin overlords take over, they're going to rectify centuries of uh, exploitation, and they're going to create land world. <laughs> and dolphin overlord children will be able to come from miles around and see amusing humans sit up on a stage and debate inanities. <laughs> When somebody wants to say that you are a wonderful person, they yeah. say you are sweet as, say, sweet as honey. Honey yeah. is the product of the bee's uh, uh, hard work. No one says you are like the effluence from a blowhole. 30 seconds. It does but, not, but it, on a pillow, you cannot have, murmur this. But John, this. have you it, ever heard the expression, the killer dolphins are coming? <laughs> yeah. No, and, bees swarm, they attack, they consume and destroy. Do you know how those, annoying... And John, while I've always thought that you were, in fact, the bee's knees, a higher compliment would be to call you the dolphin's flippers. <laughs> and let's, let's end. I want to end our argument not with a quote from us humans, but a quote from the dolphins themselves. I think they put it best when they said, Laundry <laughs> <laughs> four, ladies and gentlemen. Please vote. Do you vote for John and Josh and our bee overlords? Or do you, piteous humans, vote for Stephen and Mike and our dolphin overlord? <laughs> Dolphins take the day. Congratulations. Um, can I just step in, Dan? There is both a dolphin and a bee emoji. And I just checked emoji tracker, and the dolphin emoji is more popular. Also true of tramp stamps. <laughs> All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen... That is our last quandary. So a number of members of the political culture gabfests have mentioned over the past couple of months the influence that early politicians or culture 
icons had in the development of your current views on various issues. I was wondering what you think the many 18 to 26-year-olds in this room will think about culture and politics 40 years from now when we're the old 50-year-old fogies, six-year-old fogies who are trying to think about politics and culture in the middle 21st century. David Plotz has an I have, answer. I have an answer about this. I've thought about this. Um, which is that if you look at why, why is it that the Republicans have a bazillion good candidates in 2016? By good, I mean they're not necessarily that you agree with them, but that they are very, they're going to be very powerful and effective presidential candidates in 2016. It's because there's a cohort of people who came of age in the 80s into Ronald Reagan and who really got politically motivated. And those people are now hitting their 40s, 50s, and are in a position to run for president. I think what we're going to see with your generation in 40 years, well, probably more like in 20, 30 years, is that you're going to be, you'll have been animated by the Obama era, as, as grim as it seems now, but there's so much of the, the kind of activism of Obama that will carry forward. And I, I really think that if you look at who's going to be leading the country in 25 years, it's going to be this cohort. You, it'll be as strong a class on the kind of left as there is right now on the right. I disagree. I wear your disagreement as because, a badge of honor. Because, oh, okay. I thought you were asking me why, but no, <laughs> clearly you don't care. I'd like to know why. Why? Because there was an ideological coherence to Reaganism about which those people got excited and could stay excited, and there's been no equivalently ideologically coherent underpinning to Obama. And in fact, he's dissipated a lot of that initial dancing in the streets of Brooklyn enthusiasm among this generation. So it's, to me, a completely open question whether you're going to get this equivalently zealously motivated cadre of young people coming of age in 15 to 30 years. Yeah, if anything, the lesson of the last six years is just the, like, his frustrated hope, right? It's like, oh, well, I might as well not try anything. You know that scene in Mary Poppins when they're on the ceiling and they all come down? That's how I feel right now. <laughs> By burping? Yeah, oh, like no, that, that was long <laughs> All right. It needs an emoji. Thank you. Next question. Hi there. There's been a theme through a lot of the political gab fest, but general comments about how broken and dysfunctional our system is. I'm a bit of an optimist and a cynic. So if I had a billionaire in my pocket who was willing to spend a lot of money to fix few things about our system, structural impediments to really having a functioning government, what would you pick to work on? She's Let's got a billionaire see. in her pocket. Let's use that a billionaire. billionaire in your pocket. Warren I mean, Buffett's very small. I think campaign finance, election reforms, systemic election reforms, a change to the way we do districting um, and to how we fund elections. I mean, I think Larry Lessig and his Mayday Project are really onto something, even though it seems kind of nuts to have everyone donate tons of money to stop donating tons of money. But that... Until we have a party that is really not beholden to huge moneyed interests, I don't know how we address the fundamental problems with inequality and in our economy. See, I disagree with you, Emily, and I disagree with the premise of the question. I don't think a billion dollars does anything. I think Michael Bloomberg spent his money on gun control and it went nowhere. I think Sheldon Adelson picked his candidate and it went nowhere. I think that in general, all this money sloshing around, it's like water, it'll get to the candidates. But there's not anything structurally that a billion dollars would do. I say pick one issue that's an issue that's ripe and make it so. I would say either eliminating the penny or daylight savings time. Mike Pesca has spoken. Let's have our next question. I was there the day they eliminated the penny. <laughs> uh, so I've got a, big, a bit of a me- meta question. 
Um, so most of you probably know about uh, Startup, the podcast by Alex Bloomberg about uh, Gimlet. So I was just wondering what you guys thought about that model of podcasting, the future of podcasting, how podcasting fits with the future of Slate. Just, you know, a couple of things. We're bullish like the rest of the podcasting world about the future of podcasting and the future of podcasting at Slate. But Andy Bowers will have me shot after the show if I reveal his secret master plans. <laughs> Wait, but how many podcasts do we have represented up here tonight, Julia? I think nine. I mean, right? Right. Including, and ten, including whatever this dolphin is. <laughs> this bee dolphin? It's a bee dolphin. No, I mean, the thing that's amazing about podcasting, which everyone in this room knows, is that, it, is that it's an incredibly intimate medium, right? Like, whichever podcast you listen to, and I know this because I listen to them all the time, the voices of those people are in your head every week, and it's like having a coffee date with a regular friend. Like, you feel like you know them. I feel deeply in touch with Plotz and Emily and Dickerson because I listen to them religiously, even if I I haven't talked to them in a couple of weeks. I know, I know what they're thinking and I feel close to them. And that closeness is, I think, in some ways a counterpoint to the larger trends in media right now. There's sort of this glancing connection with different sites. You're sort of bouncing around on social media. You catch a little bit of this. You read the headline of that. And podcasts allow for a kind of deep engagement uh, and sustained thought that is rarer and harder to come by than it has been. And I think that's why it appeals to listeners and why um, people who are starting businesses are starting to get in on the action. All right. We have time for one more question. Let's have it, please. So this might sound like a culture question, but anyone is invited to respond. Uh, Who would play you in the movie of your life? And who would you cast as your slate cohorts? (laughs) Leaving aside Daniel Craig for Dickerson. (laughs) And George Lazenby. Yeah, George Lazenby. Well, you can't do it about yourself because then you sound... There's no way to answer this question about yourself, right? Right. I don't think so. Let's see. I I can. Paul Giamatti plays me. (laughs) Second. It's easy. Jason Alexander plays Pesca. (laughs) Obviously. I think Chloe Savigny could play Julia. Ooh, no, nice. I think she already played Hannah, so yeah, right. she played David's wife in Shattered Glass. Kate Blanchett is going to play me. <laughs> it's actually it's inked. Yeah. Julia could be yeah. We think Julia could be Maggie Gyllenhaal over here. Yeah, you know for that. Emily, I think that you look a lot like um, that woman Marina Baccarin who plays the oh, wife yeah. on Homeland. And the V. She oh, plays and and the and the alien overlord in V. The alien overlord. <laughs> I want to be the. She, alien she's overlord. very attractive and she has high cheekbones. It's a compliment. Thank you. Your face is tall, friend. That's you, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much to our Gabfesters. Thanks for standing. Pesca, stay sitting down. We got to do credits and stuff. Don't like get up. Our producer here in Brooklyn is Mike Wolo with help from Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Chris Laskowski, Josephine Livingston, and Max Tawney. Thanks also to Jack Beck, Aaron Bergen, Shannon Hansen, and Lindsay Nelson. Thanks to the crew here at the Music Hall of Williamsburg for all the Tecate. Joel Myers, our managing producer, the executive producers, Andy Bowers. And a big thanks once again to our sponsor, Acura, for bringing the Gap Fest to five cities around the country. And of course, as we all know from Hang Up and Listen, remember Zelmo Beatty. For Steve, Dana, Julia, Stefan, Josh, Mike, David, John, and Emily, I'm Dan Coyce. Good night.
Hey there, I'm Mike Pesca from The Gist. If you love Slate Podcasts and you're incredibly talented, that's weird. No, you should work here. And it just so happens that we're hiring. Head over to slate.com slash audio jobs to learn more about our openings for an audio project manager and two developers at slate.com slash audio jobs.